some sermons you preach and you just feel the weight of a particular narrative, how that you are personally affected. I mean, sometimes you could maybe think that a pastor stands somewhat aloof because he's just getting up and delivering the sermon, expecting the people to receive the word. But we are profoundly affected as we study the word. If this sermon is not part of me, uh, if it hasn't moved me and spoken to my heart, caused me to reflect about it and bring my life into subjection to it, then I can't expect for you to respond any other way. So we are all captive tonight, today, by listening to what the Word says. And I get the wonderful luxury of being able to stand in this pulpit and preach to people that I assume will be receptive to hear the Word, right? And I get to hear an awesome song like that of inspiration before I actually preach the sermon. Stephen did not get that opportunity. He didn't have Brother David leading a song and us worshiping the King and setting the mode and the tone and putting our minds on the Lord Jesus Christ. Stephen stood against a recalcitrant, stiff-necked people who were ready to kill him because of the gospel of the Lord that he served. And so Stephen, he didn't get to stand behind a podium nor have a instrument, a wonderful instrumental and inspirational song given. He didn't preach it to an eager audience wanting to hear the word so that they were changed. He, were, he was listening. He was preaching to a crowd that thought he had debased the law and debunked the temple. So to them, he was, for Stephen, he was in a very precarious situation. Now, what would you have done in his predicament? Try to weasel out? Maybe give some soothing platitudes? What would I have done in this situation? Well, he is going to courageously, let yet carefully, bring Israel's history back to them. And it's going to all climax in the work of Jesus Christ. So Stephen's sermon from chapter 7, all of chapter 7, is going to be a Christ-centered, Christ-exalting sermon. You know, all of our sermons should be that way, amen? They should all be Christ-centered and Christ-exalting, and that's exactly what this text is about. There, when I read through it, the interesting thing I see is that there's no declaration of the cross. Y'all listen to me closely. There's no affirmation of the resurrection, and there's no evangelistic call at the end of the sermon. He doesn't say, based on what you've heard, repent and believe. This sermon is about judiciary disobedience. And the ruling's going to be judgment. No invitation, no cross preached, no resurrection. Just straight to the end of the sermon. And the end of the sermon is, you're a stiff-necked people. And not 10 years, 15, 20 years from this time frame... Jerusalem's going to be destroyed just like the Lord Jesus predicted it would. And so there were no second chances here. Among the prophets, such as Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and all the minor prophets, there's something that's called a lawsuit oracle. I'm educating you a little bit on Old Testament preaching. But that lawsuit oracle followed this kind of understanding. God has given you His covenant. He's told you to obey Him. If you obey Him, you get blessed. This is Old Testament covenant, right? If you disobey Him, you're going to be cursed. 
And so what the prophet would do, whether it was Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, or any of the minor prophets, Malachi, Zechariah, all these guys would come forth with what's called a lawsuit oracle. And what they would do is they would say, here were the terms of the covenant God made with you. He is your God, you are his people. This is the way you're supposed to respond to the God that you belong to. But yet you've disobeyed the Lord. And so when you break the covenant, God is going to raise up a covenant enforcer. And he's going to go over the details of what it means to be in a covenant relationship with the only God that exists. What it means for you to belong to him. And then he would call the nation back to repent and turn to the Lord and be faithful. If the nation continued in disobedience to the covenant, the prophets moved from covenant reinforcers, uh, enforcers to covenant prosecutors. They stood in the place of God and they gave down the prosecuting understanding and the people became the defendants. Their violations formed the covenant lawsuit. And so oftentimes, the prophet would go over the redemptive history. How many of you have read the Psalms or read other texts where the writer will start saying, God brought you out of Egypt with a mighty hand, brought you across the river Jordan into a... Y'all remember that? He, he will reiterate that, rehearse the history. Why? To give them the redemptive lesson. Do you remember when Moses came down on Sinai, gave you the law and said, since you are my people, this is the way you're supposed to obey. And you remember those things. There are certain scenarios that took place often as the sermon was preached. They would say, if you repent, God will bless you. Sometimes he would say that there's going to be some judgment coming, then you better repent, and then God will bless you. But sometimes the covenant prosecutor would say, there's no chance of you turning at all, and God's going to join, God will judge you. No promise whatsoever of God blessing them at all. Now, some of you are wondering why I gave you all this information. I don't know why I gave it. No, here, here's the reason. The reason is Stephen follows in the same line of preaching in his sermon. It's a lawsuit oracle. Jerusalem has had its day. They had listened but did not hear. And God was judging those people. The gospel would leave Jerusalem. And God would use it. He even uses the foolishness of man to get his will accomplished, right? And the gospel will leave Jerusalem and go to the ends of the earth. And it will be Stephen's sermon. You see why? When I, when I read this, I'm thinking, I'm delivering this kind of sermon. And I'm not anywhere close to being the kind of man this was preaching this sermon. He gave his life. This is going to be his first sermon and his last. And he's going to die when he's finished preaching. He's going to be killed and stoned to death. He lived like Jesus lived. Taught like Jesus taught. Had a trial like Jesus had. And died like Jesus did. What Stephen's going to do in this sermon is he's going to use their accusations against him as a rebuttal, and he's going to turn it around and tell them how they really are the ones who demeaned the law and the temple to teach them that God sent forth his son in all of his glory, and they rejected him. That's going to be the end of the sermon. So there are two things I want you to think about as we read through. Start. I'm not going to read it all because time wouldn't allow. Today we'll go from 7-1 down through verse 16. We'll break the sermon down in a few weeks and finish it up with his martyrdom. But two lines of thinking. He wants you to think about the fact that the nation of Israel had an idolatrous attachment to a temple that only had a location, but it was not sacred space. They felt like that the temple 
was where God's glory dwelt only there. So it was worshiping sacred space. And the second thing is because their idolatrous attachment to a physical temple, because of it, they had missed the real glory of God and His presence. And ultimately, the real glory of God and His presence was given to us in Emmanuel, God with us, the Lord Jesus Christ. So as a result of their jealousy and rebellion, they had broken God's law and His covenant. And he basically says, you guys are the ones demeaning the law. You guys are the ones missing what the true temple is. They fail to grasp the central message of the Word of God. And there are Sunday after Sunday after Sunday that I stand and preach, or Brother Chris preaches, and people hear, but they don't hear, and they fail to grasp the central message of the Word of God. And the central message even of the Old Testament is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's the central message, even of the Old Testament. And so, here the people had rejected it. You remember how Jesus connected the religious leaders' wrong interpretation of the Old Testament? Listen to Jesus. John 5, He says, You pour over the Scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them. Yet the Scriptures testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you will have eternal life. He follows it up by saying this. If you believe Moses, you will believe me because Moses wrote about me. All the Scripture points to Jesus. And he goes on to say, you mistreated all the prophets. Should we ever think any different that you would mistreat the Son of God? They would follow suit with Jesus like they did all the rest of the prophets. They didn't want to hear. Remember, they shut their ears up against Jeremiah. We don't want to hear what God's prophet has to say. And that's something with profound continuity all the way through the Old Testament. They didn't want to hear what God had to say to them. So he says to the Israelites on that day, you're just following your family tradition. And the family tradition is that God sent a messenger and you killed the mailman. So that's exactly what's going to happen in reference to Jesus Christ. So there's going to be a judicial hardening at the end of this sermon. You say, well, is it really worth it if Stephen's going to give a sermon and it's going to harden everybody's hearts and they're all going to die and go to hell? Is it really worth giving the sermon? Well, yeah, it's God's truth. But don't forget about it, this. God can use a message of judicial, judicial hardening to save a soul. Because that's exactly what's going to happen. Because the man who holds the cloaks of the very ones who stoned Stephen to death, will never, ever forget what it was like to see someone die for Jesus. And his name is Saul of Tarsus, whom God will save and resurrect his dead heart. And he's going to repeatedly talk about Stephen's martyrdom throughout Acts and different times in the Word of God because it made a profound impact upon his heart. Now, y'all ready for the sermon? Okay, beginning in Acts chapter 7. Let's begin reading in verse 1. Here's the word of the Lord. And the high priest said, that's Caiaphas, right? This is a bad dude, okay? He had Jesus on trial. He had the apostles on trial. He, he now has Stephen on trial. And are these things so? The Greek would add to that that his understanding would be, you're guilty, now prove otherwise, okay? He's saying, are these things so? And Stephen said, Here's a sermon. Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory. Mm, interesting how he starts the sermon. Appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. Before he lived in Haran and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. 
And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet, he gave him no inheritance in it. Not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. If you know the story of Abraham, your mind ought to be tracking with the story, right? The narratives in the Old Testament. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve. What nation was that? Egypt. Are y'all tracking with me? Right? But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him. Boy, don't underscore. Don't forget that. God was with Joseph. Even down in Egypt, a pagan land. But God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all of Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. Mm. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all, And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. All right, I must stop there because that's as long as I could go this morning without you falling asleep. All right? So it is. Here's the the thematic structure. Write this down, or it should be on your handout. God's presence, i.e. glory, in parentheses. God's glory is not confined or restricted to a building or sacred space. Caiaphas, he's going to be responsible for this mock trial. The same guy that was responsible for the trial of Jesus. He stood in judgment over Peter and the apostles. And here once again, he's leaving the Sanhedrin. And he's going to be ultimately responsible for the first Christian martyr. It's going to be Caiaphas. And again, he starts off saying, you're pretty much guilty. And then here's what he's going to do. Stephen's going to start giving his rebuttal and his defense, giving the return of the accusations. He's going to begin with Abraham. You can't go back any further than that. He goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. He goes all the way back to the time when the God of the universe became imminently involved with a person that led to being imminently involved with a people. And that was God appeared in his glory to Abraham. But check this out, people. It wasn't in Jerusalem. It wasn't near a temple. He even came down when there was no law. Are y'all listening? God appeared in his glory to Abraham, a pagan. So the focus, we don't want to focus on the gigantic, broad spectrum of all those narratives. I could preach forever on Abraham, right? We could go over to Hebrews 11, and we could talk about Abraham. We could preach from Genesis 12. But I don't want you to miss the forest for the trees. I want you to think about why Stephen would have said this in this context. So in 2 through 4, 
he refers to Abraham's call to the promised land. And he addresses this with bold boldness, yet with recognition of common ground. And I think this is great preaching. He's bold and courageous, but yet he's very respect, uh, respectful to the Jewish people. He, he's not coming out and just lambasting them at first. He has uh, a lot of propriety about handling this. And any time a Jew heard the word glory, what would they think about? Shekinah glory. The glory of God coming down like it did on Mount Sinai. And the, it was a visible manifestation of the glory of God. So for a Jew, where would that visible manifestation be right now? Or right when this was written? It would be the temple. Right? In their mind... Stephen starts a sermon like that because glory would immediately make them run to the temple. Run to thinking about Shekinah glory. Run to thinking about God coming down and manifesting himself. So, it was in the temple. But the fact of the matter is, in their mind, his glory was confined to that temple. But he reminds them that Abraham was a pagan in a foreign land. He wasn't anywhere near the temple. Furthermore, he was a pagan. He had no dibs on God whatsoever. He, had no de- he, had, he didn't deserve for God to come down and speak to him. Abraham was just minding his own business down in a, in a land, Mesopotamia, which is known for being moon god worshipers. He was lost as a goose in a snowstorm. Had no idea that God even existed. And all of a sudden, God comes down to Abraham. Starts their race. And Stephen talks about that call. It's common ground to the Jews, right? He's not telling them something they don't know. They know the stories. They just haven't connected the dots of glory. They haven't figured out what's going on. So to them, the promise of land was everything. Everything revolved around Jerusalem and more specifically, the temple. But God moved him toward this sacred space. But here's the kicker. Abraham never inherited this sacred space. He never did inherit this sacred space. He never had it. He never had one solitary square inch of it for his possession. Yet he told them, God said to him, you don't have a son, but you will have a son, and your descendants will be given the promise as well. And if you think this is glorious sacred space, I want to remind you that Father Abraham never occupied it. What did God do with Abraham? What did God tell him? You're going to have a son. So he gives them a promise, and then he gives them a covenant that Abraham believes, how? By faith. And Abraham believed God, not because he had a temple to go to, not because he had a church building to go to, but Abraham believed God, and it was given to his account as righteousness. That sounds like the way you're saved in the New Testament, right? Because it is, right? It's the same way you're saved, the same way anybody could ever be saved. It's by grace through faith. But he believed God. And then he gave them the covenant of circumcision. Abraham circumcised his son on the eighth day. Obviously, again, they knew this. And so Stephen was proving that Abraham's relationship to God was not based on sacred space, but on covenant, promise, and faith. That's how it was based to begin with. Even though there was no holy place, there was a holy people. Even though they didn't possess, possess a land, yet they possessed a future and a hope in the faithfulness of God. So Abraham was, he stood as a monument to the Jewish people. It was not right for them to believe 
that sacred that God was confined to sacred space. God made a covenant with the people in promise and in faith. Abraham had not one single tangible object in which to trust. He believed the bare word of God that David talked about this morning and acted upon that word. He believed God. He believed God's word and it was counted to him as righteousness. The writer of Hebrews talks about this. Don't turn. Just I'm going to turn quickly. You listen fast. Listen. For he was looking, but, but by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was not that he was to receive an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. How would y'all like to know that today when you leave church? God calls you, but you don't know where you're headed. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as, a foreign, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs of him of the same promise. For he was looking for, don't you love this? Forward to the city that had foundations, whose designer and builder was God. So down to verse 14. For people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Abraham was never putting all his stock in a piece of real estate. Unless it was in heaven. Right? And so he's given them this history lesson regarding him. And he's reminding them that their glorious beginning of the entire Jewish race was with a man that was on the move, following a God who was always on the move. He's reminding them of that. That the inheritance they desired most was not a temple and was not a land, unless it was in heaven with the owner of the land, right? The Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the story of Abraham. Ready to move on? The relationship, covenant, promise, by faith. And now he moves to Joseph. He moves to the jealousy of the patriarchs. In verses 9 through 10, he reminds the Sanhedrin of that jealous betrayal that Joseph's brothers had toward him. Now, I think there's an obvious illusion here, don't you? Anybody see an obvious illusion in this text? Just as Joseph's brothers hated him, the religious leaders hated Jesus. Just as Joseph was betrayed into foreign hands, the Lord Jesus Christ was betrayed into the hands of the Romans, foreigners. Betrayed your own brother. It's exactly what happened and is happening, already had happened to Jesus and was happening to Stephen. So there's a parallel here with the jealousy and with the hatred of the foreigners. And this is what you better not forget, is what God is saying through Stephen as he's preaching this sermon. God was with Joseph. God was with Joseph. To an Israelite, was Egypt a good place or a bad place? Now, I bumped into some of our church people this week, and they were saying, Pastor, we're going to Gulf Shores. When Nat and I first heard that, we were like, what? Y'all go all the way to Alabama to go on vacation? That was kind of strange to us. But anyway, that's okay. I mean, you got to get to the beach somewhere from here, right? you got to go somewhere to get to the beach. But you might say, we're going to Gulf Shores for vacation, but no Israelite would say, let's go hang out on the Nile for vacation. All right? 
that just wasn't going to happen. Egypt, to them, was not a good place. It was a bad place. But the fact of the matter is, the Lord God Almighty sets up a stage of redemption in a bad place. Not in Jerusalem at the time, but in a bad place. God's going to rearrange the furniture for a greater display of His glory in a land that did not belong to the Israelites. Are y'all following this? And Stephen's preaching this sermon with passion. Egypt stood as a place of bondage. It was a place far away from God, far away from Jerusalem, far away from the temple. And so Stephen is reminding these guys that even though Joseph was sold into slavery, even though he ended up down in Egypt, God was with him in Egypt. As a matter of fact, God sent him to Egypt because they needed food coming down the line. And they needed to be redeemed so they could see what real redemption looked like before Jesus came. So God is in control here and God is working There was no sacred space in Egypt. They made blocks and bricks. They didn't have a temple to go worship in, folks. As a matter of fact, they forgot their God and worshipped false gods in Egypt. And so again, I would suggest that there's a subtle, another subtle illusion. God was with His Son, Jesus. Granted Him favor, just like in Joseph's situation. But now has highly exalted Him into heaven. And he's seated at the right hand of the Father, where God exalted Joseph down in Egypt to give him the place of preeminence in that government so that God could use him to save his people, right? God's sending his deliverer over and over and over and over again. He's sending the mailman, but the people are killing the mailman. So, again, it all fits into the sovereign plan of God and his purpose. A famine hits Egypt. We read it here, right? The brothers go down into Egypt the first time. They don't recognize Joseph the first time. The next time, the verse reminds us that for sure, they recognized that it was Joseph. Y'all see any other subtleties there? The first time he came, his own received him not. The second time he comes, I want to let you know something up front. Everybody's going to know it. When he comes the second time, everybody's going to know it. Just like it did down in Egypt with Joseph. There are incredible subtleties in this sermon, if you have ears to hear. So, the entire group of them moved out of sacred space. You note that? 75 of them left the sacred homeland, and they go down into Egypt for food. Folks, I want to remind you, if you're where God sends you, you're in the right place. Hello! Right? Are you sleeping on me? If you're in the will of God, you're in the right place. You remember the psalmist, how can we sing the Lord's song if we're captive in a foreign land? (laughs) And God says to them, every land is my land. You're going to sing the Lord's song, why? Because I'm with you everywhere you go. What an awesome understanding. So they went where the food was, went to the right place. All the forefathers had to relocate and God sets the stage for redemption. How awesome is this? He didn't do this through a temple mount, didn't do it through Jerusalem. He worked wonders of redemption down in Egypt place they hated. But God did not abandon his people down in Egypt. That's awesome. That's good preaching, right? He didn't abandon his people down in Egypt. So God was in the process again of rearranging that furniture for a greater display of his glory. He was setting the stage for a great manifestation of his glory and his presence. And verse 16 reminds us something strategic. 
And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamar in Shechem. We're reminded that the only thing they received was some burial plots. I want to remind you that's all you're going to get when you leave this world. You know, as we get a little older, we start wrestling, we start thinking about that. Well, what? i got to go buy a cemetery plot. You know, I hadn't even thought about that yet. Oh, just bear me in Missouri, folks, if I die this week. Just go ahead and tell somebody, or Natalie, whatever. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter. You really don't even own that, okay? But the fact is, that's all that all the patriarchs had. And let's just say it was six by three, six by two, you know, six foot deep, whatever. The fact of the matter, that's, that's what Stephen is trying to get them to see. You ever wonder why Joseph told his sons to bury him? Don't leave me down in Egypt. You know, carry me out. Well, symbolically, you would think, well, they don't want to stay down in Egypt. But on the flip side of that, you ever consider the fact that it was a testimony to the fact that the only land he ever had in his possession was where he'd be buried. Constant reminder of that. They did not want Palestinian dirt. And you start thinking, well, why are these people fighting over this for 4,500 years? And they have been. Killing one another. Over Palestinian dirt. Something was greater than physical land. That would be fought for. For the next 4,000 years. Please get a clue, Stephen is saying. Listen to your forefathers. The only space that they got was the space it took to put their bones in. That's the only space they got. I want to remind you of something, folks. You can live all day long for the American dream. Forgive the grammar, but you ain't taking nothing with you. Not one thing. Of course, souls of your children are pretty important. And they'll be going with you if they know Jesus. Right? But just think for a moment. There's so many things we could think about, but he's saying to them, get the clue. God, Stephen is trying to get them to understand the God that they serve. The God you serve is a God that is transcendent. And at the same time, he's imminent. From their perspective, God was tied solely to the temple. And Stephen is saying to them, okay, guys, read your history. Do you remember Abraham? Do you remember the patriarchs? Do you remember Joseph? What did our God reveal to them? He revealed that He is transcendent. And He is also imminent. Our God cannot be restricted to any temple made by hands. You remember when Solomon gave his dedicatory prayer of the temple when it was built? And no temple was built like Solomon's temple with all of his, in all of its glory. And Solomon says that to God. God, I know you can't be confined to this temple. It's impossible. The heavens cannot even contain you. How can a building contain you? But also we learn that not only is he transcendent, cannot be confined, but he is imminent. That means he can't be restricted. You can't tell God what he's going to do, where he's going to go, and how he's going to do it. He can't be restricted. He went down into Mesopotamia, a place where they worship moon gods, and he picked up Abraham and saved him by grace through faith. That's awesome! Right? And he didn't deserve it, and yet he did it. Yet he is also majestic and transcendent, can't be confined to a temple. What an awesome perspective of our great God. He is transcendent above all things, and yet he is imminent and very near to his people. The idea of sacred space violates who our God is. 
It violates the realities of who God is. He's close to His people where they are. And again, Jesus said to the woman at the well, There's coming a day when you won't worship on this mountain or this mountain, for you will worship me in... It's not going to be the place. It's going to be the object of worship. And that's the Lord Jesus. And you shall worship me in spirit and in truth. He can't be confined to a puny temple. The heavens cannot contain him. And he's reminding them how far off they were in their idolatrous worship of sacred space. And he's saying to them again and again, reiterating the fundamental realities that they had missed. That the way God worked with his people was through a covenant. And the covenant of grace. Long before Moses ever came and the law came, God worked through grace in a covenant. And here's the reality about God's people through all of this. They've always been a people who relied upon God in faith. And it started with Abraham. They've been a, they've been a people who were on the move. Remember reading that? All the patriarchs were sojourners. They never drove their tent pegs too far deep in the earth because they knew God was going to be on the move. And ultimately, our movement will be from here, a land that is going to be burned up and dissolved. And we're going to a place where the city is sure and foundations are sure. And nobody's ever going to destroy that temple. It's in glory. So they marched when God said march. They stopped when God said stop. And they did it all by faith. They trusted God and His promises, even when they were away from their homeland. And this is what they were missing. They were idolizing sacred space. They were jealousy. They were jealous of the one that God had sent. They betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ. And in their unbelief and their guilt, they missed the covenant of grace. You understand, folks, that there's so much continuity with the old and the new. Just think about this. It was always God coming down to his people. It wasn't the people pulling themselves up by their bootstraps and bringing themselves to God. It was never them doing enough to bring themselves to God. The Old Testament is about God coming down because he sought true worshipers. It brought him glory. Even in the Garden of Eden, he took man's sinfulness, even the fall, and turns it into his glory. It all rebounds. To his glory when he has a people who would love him by faith, not by anything they could possibly do. But they trusted Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John chapter 8, one of my favorite verses, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Isn't that awesome? Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and he was glad. Boy, that's good. And here's what Stephen is saying. And here's what I'm telling you today. Just as much as they saw all of these things unfold before them, they knew their history 100%. They knew the Scripture. It was different than receiving God in covenant by grace through faith. It's one thing to know all your history. It's another thing to receive Him by grace through faith. And so all the way through the Old Testament, God found out by weeding them out, who he, the ones who loved Him, Versus the ones who did whatever they did because they got something out of it. Taught them a lot, did he not? All the way through it. That's why Deuteronomy is written. Deuteronomy is the first time in the Old Testament where love is brought in. Love is the real motive for loving Jesus. Being saved. What does the scripture say? What's the greatest commandment? Sacrifice to God. 
Is that what it says? Work your way to heaven. No, it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and all your soul, and all your strength. And the second is likened to it, right? We're going to the New Testament now. Love your neighbor. It's about loving God. It's about loving people. And the fact of the matter is, God sent deliverer after deliverer after deliverer, and the people killed the mailmen. They brought the message straight from the Word of God, like I do to you every Sunday morning. Straight from the Word of God. And here's what Stephen is saying. The God of glory came down from heaven and lived in your midst. Jesus, the Son of God. Folks, if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. He said that, did he not? Here's what he said in John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Hold on. John 1.14. And the Word was made flesh, dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We beheld the glory of the Father in the face of Jesus Christ. That's not enough. Galatians 4.4 4 says that in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of a virgin, born under the law, that He might redeem those who are under the law. Hallelujah for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's what he's saying. You could see him with your eyes. You could touch him with your hands. And you could hear him with your ears. And yet since he threatened your sacred space, you turned him over like you did Joseph and you had him killed. They killed their covenant God. All because of jealousy and unbelief. I can tell you the number one thing keeping you from coming to Jesus this morning is your pride. His call and your pride. Because you think you're going to be all right. And some of you are hoping that your good outweighs your bad. It's not going to happen. Your goodness, as the Bible says, is as of a filthy rag before the Lord. Don't make me go into explanation of what that means. Your best day, you'll never measure up to the king in all of his holiness. The only way is for you to have righteousness. And the only way you could ever have it is if the king, the son of God, would come down to this earth and live a life that we could never live. And then to take that perfect life to the tree of Calvary and die in your stead. Pay your debt so that he could forgive your sins when you repent and believe. And he will give you a righteousness that is apart from the law. Let me show you that. And we're going to wrap it up. Listen to this. Romans chapter 4. Since we started with Abraham, let's end with Abraham. Listen to this. Beginning in verse 13. Listen closely. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Wow. For it is the adherence of the law. For if it is the adherence of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham. I want to ask you a question. Do you share the faith of Abraham? 
Do you believe God and His Word? If you're saved today, you're only going to be saved because you had faith in Jesus. What He did on Calvary's cross. But let me conclude by reminding you of this too. One of the most precious promises you could ever wrap your mind around is that God is with us. Folks, if He's not with you when you close your eyes in death, you don't have any hope. But that's the glory of it all, isn't it? God said, I'll have a people for myself. And God, if you're saved, He lives in you. No matter where you are, our God is near to you if you are saved. As the psalmist said, Psalm 73, 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Don't that sound good? That he is with us. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I love that song, Holy Ground. You ever heard that one before? It goes something like this in the second verse. In His presence, if you know it, sing it. There is joy beyond all measure. And at His feet, a peace of mind can still be found. Listen. If you have a need, I know He has the answer. Reach out and claim it, child. You are standing right on holy ground. Not because of this building, but because you're in Christ Jesus. If you have a need, He has the answer. Amen? Father, thank You for loving us. God, thank You so much for the Word. God, just to stand under it and to read it is so convicting. And Lord, just like in Stephen's day when he preached this sermon, he didn't have the power to change anybody's lives, anybody's life. He just did what you told him to do, and he left the results up to you. And Father, I'm in that same vein today. I I can't change a single soul. God, the results are up to you. I am satisfied that there are so many people in this church, even under this building, in this building today, they've missed Jesus. They've missed the gospel. Yeah, they're churchy. They do churchy things. But they don't have their sins forgiven. They don't have faith solely in you, and they're not on their way to heaven. I'm sure that's the case. But God, you're in the saving business. And just like you changed Saul's heart, And made him Paul. You can change their hearts today. Lord, you'll do it only through the gospel or it won't happen at all. And we're not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God and it's the salvation to those who believe. God, would you do that today? And Christians, Lord, for us, embolden us to believe you. To know that wherever we are, you are with us. That, Lord, the sacred space, the holy place is wherever you are. And you live in us. 
Therefore, it's holy ground. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.